some for it. Because the journeyman program for NAM is, um, I guess, newer. Is it newer? It'd be brand new because he knows something I don't know. <laughs> what I do is I, I do apprentices, apprenticeship um, with planters that have been assessed and approved, um, ready to plant. But instead of immediately deploying them into a plant scenario, I give them a year of apprenticeship under a, a planter active planter and or a planter that has effectively successfully planted the church, right? Because it depends on the, in, in, in Idaho, so we're being very specific, it depends on the region of the state, uh, whether or not I have an active plant going, but I may have a planter that planted successfully. So I'll toggle between an active planter and or a Planner who has recently planted successfully to apprentice someone for a year. The name of the journeyman program goes through what is called sin relief. So sin relief is a, a separate wing. Exactly. Than, yeah. than, five areas, new five new areas. Right. And yeah. so um, it, it it focuses those who have just uh, finished college to go to uh, their different sin cities, but all uh, and um, but they are supposed to still. Be engaged in church planting, but they would be under somebody who a named church planter um, and partner with them. And the job descriptions could be all over the board of, uh, with the sin cities. Of there's some that focus uh, programs that have more things with human trafficking and things like that. As you do church planting, I think IMB journeyman meets like church interns, and that's kind of what. That's what the jobs are like. And we can do the same thing in Idaho, just wouldn't be under the bigger umbrella. And NAM, the, the focal point is always the 32 plus sin cities that they have. Uh, Puerto Rico has now been pulled aside. It's all under sin de Espanol. So it's now become its own complete focal area across the breadth of the US and Canada. Um, so we can do similar things, but just not under the send relief auspice. In other words, somebody wanted to come out and and you know they weren't ready to have completed apprenticeship or something. We could connect you. I have three different churches that I could connect you with, and you could do an like a journeyman program. So I came because I actually started an inquiry with the name. And so um, I'm just a little confused because I know that the nonprofit organization I work with has some connection with Send Relief um, okay. through literacy programs. So um, I was, I'm still a little unclear about you know, it's right there on the page when you go to the name website. Mm -hmm. um, and when I did an inquiry, there were just like a million different job descriptions that came up and then you inquire for like one of them. So I'm, I would like to know, I, I just feel kind of lost <laughs> mm -hmm. about how everything is connected, the structure, how Send Relief is related to and different from the regular man. Um, I just kind of, was hoping for a general orientation on what everything is and yeah, yeah. so um from we're not necessarily all experts in the room about NAM 
because uh, uh, I just recently came off the field with the International Mission Board. But our um, our World Mission Center would uh, be would love to partner with you to discover more of that process and engaging with you. And if any other um, connections that we can make, mm -hmm. you know, so uh, Mr. Duggar here, he, he is a church planting catalyst in Idaho, which covers a lot of different ground, but Sin Relief and the different arms of, of, of NAM all function through a different engagement. I'm going to what's called Sin Network. Yeah. Okay. So Sin Network deals with everything church planting related. Okay. And the, the focal point of that, you know, and this was started more than a decade ago, was the Sin Cities identified 32 sin cities and then that's been elevated a little bit and now it's been reduced again because sin de espanol has taken over mm -hmm. uh, which is a wonderful thing um, but then you also have beyond that the, the main focus used to be disaster relief mm -hmm. you remember disaster mm -hmm. relief anybody remember the yellow and blue shirts and all that disaster relief was the main hub They've taken disaster relief and they've created now send relief. And then the five areas under send relief, human trafficking, internationals and refugees, um, disaster relief is still one of the one of the components. And um, what are the other two? Well, there's, there's foster care and foster, adoption. Exactly. And mm here -hmm. you mentioned crisis response. And crisis response, yeah. So you have five sub areas and, and under that, would be the connecting point for you under sin relief. Now, a, a simple way to make a connection there would be to call the, the NAM Connection Center. It's an 800 number and ask them, who do I need to talk about, about this specifically? And then they can reference you to an individual who handles that. That's okay. that's kind of under the umbrella, but it's not my focal area. So mm -hmm. I don't deal with that a whole lot. Is there some is there some confusion because send cities and like you were a send catalyst that's under yeah. NAM, right? Yeah, they're both but, under NAM. Yeah. but send yeah. relief is a separate institution, Southern Baptist. No, 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 we're not under NAM. Send relief yeah. is yeah. under NAM as well. Send send relief does a lot of international work though as well. They, 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 they have just they just increased the partnership to be not only North American but also international. So send relief is under NAM, but it does also work internationally. Yeah, they they just. And that's happened within the last year. Well, since uh, Chitwood came on yeah. the president. So, so that, that partnership has developed. So there's changes like that that are going on constantly. And uh, so Which is the primary reason there's confusion because with yeah. every new leader, there's a new iteration of exactly. the organization. And so Vance Pittman, who's the SEND director, is going to be president. speaking at Chapel next February. So if you're still around, he's a guy that would lay it all out for you. For his aspect, which is SIN Network, mm -hmm. everything church planet related. And uh, the, the SIN does, the SIN Relief Director or President, there's a president for that division as well. But it, it's very easy. I'll give you, just ask me when we're done, I'll give you that number. And you can contact them and they'll be able to, to do that. Do you have it? That's fine. Right. You already gave it to Okay, very good. There you go. Yeah. So, would you call Send Relief maybe a strategic plan that has kind of morphed into an umbrella under the NAM? 
Well, it, it is an umbrella of, of NAM. So what what it, what's happened to it? It's just been it's been broken into multiple areas beyond just disaster relief. It used to be that as Southern Baptists, our main response came in disaster relief uh, episodes. I've done that for more than forty years. You know, there'd be a hurricane or there'd be something happen somewhere, and, and we would send response teams. But we weren't doing a very effective job working against human trafficking or working, you know, in dealing with fostering and adoption and those kinds of things. So now all of those areas are under the concept of send relief. And, and you know, the officers being that you're, you're bringing relief in those areas to those individual lives. So, um, yeah, so it, it's a good, a good process. But like they said, it's still being fleshed out all the way. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah. Um, quick question, but uh, down here, be, um, when you get to the interview stage, what kind of questions should we be prepared for? It is, it's, it's not going to be as intense as you fear first, but uh, they are going to be looking at um, several key areas regarding your own spiritual walk with Christ and then uh, what uh, what you're doing for the missionary task uh, in the meantime as you're going through the process what I remember as being yeah. the two main categories so what is your relationship with Jesus how did that start and how does it progress and where are you now in your personal walk with Christ and then also uh, what are the ways in which you are working towards the, the missionary task uh, in your life now? How are you involved in evangelism? How are you serving in your church? How are you um, are you doing any cross-cultural things at all? And uh, those are the some of the and because of some of the other requirements in the process, you will be involved in all these things, right? Because part of the process is being involved in those type of things. Yeah. So but yeah, there there are no gotcha questions. There, there, there's no there's no trait questions. Yeah. What is having a witnessing journal like for the application process? Yeah. Like, are you? Well, what you do for uh, everyday evangelism on Thursdays, it's that. So, what you would do is you just you would enter what you did and who you spoke to and engaged with. And so, as long as you are, uh, what she, what you're referring to is the witnessing journal is part of the process with the IMB. As you get, you have your initial stages of uh, being interviewed and engaging. Um, and then as you're further, getting further along, you, your pastor and you will, will start a mentorship relationship based off the curriculum that the IME gives. And part of that is that six-month process of seeing where you're at, um, along with your pastor or, or um, close to your pastor or whatever in your church, if you have one, is a witnessing journal. And that is showing you're just writing down as you engage others with the gospel what opportunities and what you have been able to share and what, what has come from that. So that what you're doing with everyday evangelism on Thursdays would just dovetail right into it. They're not looking for a mountain of details. So yeah. it's, it's, it, you you hear the word journal, it's like, do I have to write a big journal anywhere on every, no. Uh, it, it's just about share the gospel with this person a day, you know, and maybe a, a sentence or two about how it went, but not like every single thing you share with them. What was their response and all, all the nuances? Just um, they're just looking for patterns of consistency, patterns of consistency. Yeah. and then also 
um, effectively engaging. It's usually is more faithfulness than is, you know, you know, the Lord leads us people to himself. We share him. I think that when I went through the process seven years ago, they actually gave me a like a form, like a, a document that was my journal, and then it just had like lines for what they were expecting. So it's like that. There's also a resource that the IV has created. They, they're calling it a self-assessment. It's like a 17-page assessment. They're going to get us a link that will have a QR code, you know, in the student center where that little bar is, where we're never sitting. <laughs> um, there will be a QR code that will take you right to the link. You can take it away with your phone. And it's, it's really not to see if you qualify. It's to help you understand where you are in the process. It will give you uh, ideas on how to begin to prepare yourself for the process. Uh, I think it's going to be really helpful. Uh, so that's going to be available shortly. It's already available as a link, but I've suggested to uh, Dr. Gregory that most students are going to stand there at that booth to go through 17 pages <laughs> of blanks. And so it's something that you can take home with you, give consideration to. They, they do pay attention to the gospel behaviors piece. Mm -hmm. Like, because there will be lots of adjustments on the field. And what the IMB would prefer not to do is to send people overseas to do something that they're not doing here. Mm -hmm. And, and my, my assessment is, this is the best place to prepare for that because this is a school where professors go with you to witness. They model for you. They make sure you're not doing your first cold call by yourself. I, I don't know any other seminary that, that has faculty that does that with, with students. There are multiple groups of students who go out every week. You need to join one. Uh, so if you'd like to know when and where they, they meet every week, we can give you that information. Um, yeah, it, it may be that you'll get to the place of your calling and you realize, well, I need to tweak my evangelistic method. Uh, because most places that have the deepest gospel poverty, they don't respond well to a, a sales pitch because the guy you're trying to pitch they never heard of. So you may find that you're you're moving to more of a discipling people into faith. So establishing some form of community, having spiritual conversations. I haven't found anybody who isn't curious about opening up God's book and seeing if that God has anything to say to Uzbeks or Malaysians or Chinese today. Um, so, so there's lots of ways. Um, look at the New Testament, how much time Jesus spent with 12 men who when he ordered creation to lie down, they did not say, of course, he's God. They said, who is this? So in, in that text that we all have in our Bibles, it's clear the disciples were not Christians when they left the nets. They were discipled into a realization who Jesus was, and then his spirit came, and they woke up. Uh, so, but the importance for the IMB is, do you have intentions to be faithful to the to gospel behaviors? They, they're interested in that conversation. Come on in. Oh, brought chicken. It's okay to sit on the floor, too. No, no, here, take, take, take this chair. There's an extra chair right here. We can get more chairs. Other questions. 
Oh, sorry, guys. Thank you, Okay, while they're doing that, what are some of the things that you guys had wished you what classes do you wish you would have taken or even mini courses before you went overseas? Because you all had your degrees before going overseas, right? Um, well, let me just slightly echo what Dr. Bunton said and just say that's exactly what I did when I was here for two years. I went out with the evangelism practicums uh, twice a week uh, for the whole two years. Uh, and uh, you don't have to be in a practicum class to go to those classes. You can learn and you can just go. And it was a great training ground because this is an extremely multicultural part of the city. And I could, I could notice how my strategy was changing based on the encounters I was having, even those two years yeah. based on the cultures I was encountering. And so it it's really, a those practicums are great to go out and just try things and, and see how your strategy uh, change. But yeah, your strategy then will definitely change when you get to your mission field because your context can be totally different. But then you know how to do it, right? You know how to how it feels like to start trying things and seeing if it works or not, and change methodologies and practices and approaches. Um, as far as classes I took, I took the classes I wanted to take. I I really I love taking the, the electives and finding fun ones to take. Um, I took one that I don't think is taught anymore on angels and demons that was amazing and a good one to take if you're headed to the mission field. Um, something that the rest of the Christian church is thinking a lot more about than we are here in um, America. Um, so. I would have paid more attention in most of my language classes in high school. <laughs> but um, honestly, I, one thing that we don't um, often cover, unless it's an intro to theology or other courses, is on on the field language learning, at least with the international with going overseas, but also even in the states, um, being adapted um, and getting to a point in your <clears throat> language study of some kind where you can get into uh, verb conjugation, or you can get into understanding how your your brain processes language in general, because you can be in a lot of great many places in the in the states and overseas where 
you don't have to become fluent in somebody's language, especially if you're encountering refugees a great deal and it, it changes a lot. But being able to take on um, some of the language is always a blessing and it is always opens doors to sitting in people's homes, um, even just uh, little amounts. So yeah, I, I would say, I wish I had taken more language in order to wrestle with it and understand how I learn it. Yeah, that, it's important to take away that feeling of intimidation uh, that you have when approaching a new language, just to approach it like, I can do this, many people have done it, and it's just a matter of sitting down and doing it. I'll put in a quick plug also for Greek and Hebrew. A lot of people roll their eyes at Greek and Hebrew. I absolutely love my Greek and Hebrew, and I use it all the time on the mission field. I, they're not sitting just as useless tools in my closet that I had to do in seminary. They're, they're great. And uh, and learning vocab on flashcards is something you're going to be doing on the first year of the mission field. So it's good to develop that muscle as well. I don't know if someone's already mentioned world religions. I, I think the stereotype of Christians is we are constantly doing theological navel gazing, meaning we just study ourselves. And, um, you know, classes that, that present world religions as a, an effort for people to be engaged spiritually somehow and discovering the fingerprints of God in every culture, that would have been far more helpful than a lot of the study I did, you know, filling up my my master back then masters was a lot more classes and a lot more required classes that, that didn't particularly help me in the mission field. So, but studying world religions would have been helpful, including moral atheism, uh, where where people convinced they they don't have to be afraid of a god to be good. Um, so, come on, you guys, there's. This is a hundred dollar seat I had to plan in the country that had the hardest language of all. I had to learn how to speak Canadian. That's <laughs> uh, near impossible, eh? But uh, you have to learn how to be a lot more insecure, bro. <laughs> but no, I, but I, I have as a as a senior pastor, I have led my church in in planting in uh, India. Uh, for 10 years, we were engaged there. Um, and and I, I'll be honest with you, when I attended Southwestern, this has been 32 plus years ago, but I'm attending now, working on doctors finally. Uh, I think I got a pretty well-rounded MDiv. And so if you're getting an MDiv with biblical languages attached, well, I think they brought that back to the requirement now, right? Um, if, if, you'll, if you'll diversify in your electives, uh, based on you know where you believe God is calling you, I think you can get yourself a pretty good degree that can help you um, wherever the Lord may lead you across the world. Um, but I, I agree with the brother here. The language is 
to me, and we're talking about the biblical languages, are an essential component. Um, for, for many of you, you will be the only theologian that the people you're dealing with will ever know. And if you can't rightly divide the word, if you can't deal with the original languages, um, you know, at, at a pretty decent level, then you're not going to be able to bring them everything they need to hear and understand from the word of God. So, um, but I, we had world religions when, when I was here. I think, of course, you, where'd you go? Golden Gate? No, you have to bring that up. Yes. <laughs> I would have thought they had world religions because they're kind of known as the gateway to the east. But anyway, we, we had world religions when, when I was at South Ocean. And I'm sure maybe you got to do, do it as well. So, yeah. Um, and, and so study those things. I mean, if you're, if you're, if God is settling your heart on a particular location within the world beyond the United States, um, you know, begin to focus in, in that area and find and read what you can, study what you can. But, but I'll say this too, with regard to cross-cultural reality. If you told me, you know, I want to come plant a church in Idaho, you're going to have to be cross-cultural. To come and plant a church in Idaho because Idaho is not the South, okay? It's not wherever your native land may be. That's not Idaho. Idaho is, is different and it's unique and there are nuances and there's, you know, all kinds of things that make it what it is. And the person that survives there and finds success there is the person that can, can match all of those crazy quirky things and cultural realities that we face in Idaho, okay? So when you think cultural context, it, it can go certainly to, to land far away from here, but even if you're serving in the States or in Canada, you have to learn to be cross-cultural. We found success there, my wife and I, as native Texans. Uh, how is that possible? Only by the power of God, but we did. And we, to this day, love Canada, love the people of Canada, and some of the greatest friendships we have on this mm -hmm. earth are with Canadian uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and Canadians that we share a witness with who have yet to come to Christ and continue to engage them. So, so yeah, I, but I think a good broad-based uh, MDiv is a great place to start. Yeah, the bank off of that with uh, plugging MDiv work, it is, of course, 84 hours is the minimum of an MDiv. And so it is a much longer experience. And of course, that means it's more expensive and you have to see the Lord work in that. But um, I did I did things a little bit in reverse. I just wanted to get to the field. So I did a master's in the theology in 65 hours with my master's. Um, but what I found on the field and then what I found after my first term of being a career missionary was like I wasn't done with me and needing to get and in biblical ones because he was calling me to go ahead and do in-depth research about one people group preaching and another people group and I needed to get a PhD to do that. So um but my experience in filling out my hours was I took Greek and Hebrew after being on the field for the first three years. But the thing with Greek and Hebrew what Thomas mentioned and this might sound kind of dorky or nerdy but you learn Greek and Hebrew and you take your hermeneutics classes and you take your, um, your electives. You get a robust sense of what culture and society was like in the first century that can only help you in going and being a church planter. 
that can only help you in being a church planter in um, and among an ethnicity and a language that you didn't know uh, beforehand. Um, so the MDiv, I ended up needing it no matter what. Um, and in a lot of ways, I wish I had just gone ahead and done it. Another thing with the MDiv is a lot of argument against it because it's so long is that you're going to be not working and in this academic, what's it called? Is it the pillar or the ghetto? Out, academic get let's just say ghetto the <laughs> academic ghetto or your little uh your little nice cozy bubble but in reality it is what you put into it so you like your professors might not always they're going to be at, especially at southwestern they're going to be telling you okay this is how you understand prepositions in in greek and prepositions in greek high has different glosses than what we just use in or in english and so you get a sense of culture there, but it just builds off of that. And then um, um, you get, if you are engaging, how many names you're engaging your, your New Testament classes, you're engaging your things, you can be thinking cross-culturally, you can be thinking missionally, whether church planning in, this, in the United States or somewhere else. Um, and you will, you will gain a great deal of knowledge from that, but then also where we are Thankfully, in Fort Dallas, Fort Worth area, you can really engage in ministry and have an opportunity that most people don't have in a long term sense, and that you can gain great mentors in ministry and also be digging really deeply. And then you have a lot of uh, resources to ask a great deal of questions, to fail a great deal, and to learn a great deal. And that's why the MDiv is. Um, is an amazing opportunity in depth. So, yeah. yeah. One more thing about this, which is I also plugged the MDiv and I did two plus three, which means I did, I only was here for two years and then I finished the MDiv on the field, very doable and a great pathway uh, to go with the IMB. Um, the last thing I'll say about coursework is you can turn any class into a missions class. Uh, you 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 decide what to write the paper on, right? Even those those classes where it gives you like a list of topics, those are always suggestions. If you approach your professor and say, "I want to write it on this, and this is why I want to write it on this," ninety nine times out of hundred, the professor is like, "Wow, this student actually is interested in writing on something." Yeah, go for it, man. You can definitely write that. So, um, uh, yeah, my church history two class, I wrote on Andrew Fuller and William Carey and the Baptist Missionary Society and that whole movement because I wanted to understand it. What 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 put these guys on fire for reaching uh, the nations with the word of God? And, uh, you know, everybody else is writing on, you know, Luther and Calvin. But you have the ability to to turn any class into a missions class. Even I, my Hebrew paper, I wrote on Psalm 67. It's an amazing uh, psalm about uh, being a light to the nations, right? And I uh, wanted to understand it, really, really understand what the psalm is saying. Uh, so you guys do that, too. Use your classes and, and equip yourselves. That's, that's what master's level is too. The professors are there as a starting point and then you take that ball and you run with it. Another thing I was gonna mention about uh, church planting in the United States and what Mr. Duggar uh, brought out was that um, sin relief, the human trafficking, poverty alleviation, all these different uh, focuses that are very much the heart of many in, in that want to go church planting, you want to be about on mission, um, most of those, even in the States, are very, very large cross-cultural experiences. 
the, the peoples that um, that you will engage as you engage those things, even in the United States. So the cross-cultural and the opportunity to get um, uh, in-depth theological education, just to gain it, uh, theological depth um, is very important. So. Um, so for, like you mentioned that you took Greek and Hebrew with the two plus three program, did you use Hebrew or did you use your electives on extra language? I, I used one of my electives for Hebrew three. Yeah. I used uh, my Hebrew directly in, in witnessing with uh, Muslims. I, some Muslims, as they come, there are Muslim missionaries themselves. So I was a friend overseas. His uncle had just been on Hajj came back and was uh, witnessing to me about uh, Muhammad. And he was showing me in different texts where uh, Muhammad has multiple names. It's Ahmed or Ahmed or a lot of different things, Mehmet. And so he knew how to read Hebrew, like the, the letters. And so he went through and the person who trained him went through and said, okay, this, this uh, word, is actually um, speaking about Muhammad and Isaiah. Well, you you read, I could open it up and read it and say, no, that actually is a verb, means the comfort. So it's not, um, that is not what you think it is. And so even from that little example, um, but even further, you could you will use yep. your language. Yeah, for me, just the fact that I can work with the biblical languages. So I'm working in kind of a post-Catholic context, and everyone has some familiarity with the Catholic Church. I serve in Belgium. Um, when I reveal to people that I, I work with the biblical languages when I prepare my sermons, they their respect for me goes up because priests have no reason to learn Greek and Hebrew, and they don't learn Greek and Hebrew. They learn Latin, right? Because their job is to interpret the tradition of the Catholic Church to uh, their congregation, where right, we believe that the job of the pastor is to interpret the word of God to people, right? And so it, it legitimizes me, because a lot of people just view all Protestants as a part of the cult in Belgium. They never turn Protestant, so like for them, all Protestants are just some weird little offshoot that happened and so for me it's like all right well you've done some some work here now you you uh you're qualified to do what you're doing and uh it's interesting to me how that just the, the mere fact that i have that background it, it opens doors and conversations with people so the point of everything is do the hard work now just mm -hmm. do the hard work now it pays off what does it look like to juggle the comic? So in, a, in the two plus two or two plus three program to study language or serving on the platform? On, on the mission field? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's nice is um, part of the two plus three is your learning of a foreign language gives you some credits. I think you get six credits for, for learning uh, two semesters worth for learning a foreign language. And the first year you're on the field, that's all you're allowed to do. You are only allowed to get those six credits, and you have to focus on learning the language. Um, so then, uh, amongst other job responsibilities, right? No, no, sure, yeah. yeah. But as far as the academic yeah. work, the academic, as far as the academic yes. work, you're not allowed to take any classes uh, when you're in that full-time language study, which is good because it gives you you have you literally have to focus on that. Um, but then after that, it becomes more manageable. Where, uh, um, yeah, I took. Two classes a semester 
for a year and a half and that got me all the requirements that I had left. So, and then there are like uh, special uh, weeks where you come in and do six, um, you like fly to Istanbul or something and do six credits within two weeks. And that happened once for me, but then you get, you get a lot of credits done, you know. Right. Is that is that program is it limited to certain countries or or again like if you have a direction you're going two plus two plus three yeah no 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 if you go with IMB you can do the two plus three doesn't matter where in the world you're going yeah yeah um, there's some international students here yeah and then I think the main thing with IMB is that usually you at least have to have a green card. To join IMB, mm -hmm. but is there a different process in which international students can join IMB and serve on that issue as well? Not besides getting a green card or yes, yeah. So if you want to be hired with IMB, then the, the green card is the way to go. So there's no there's no legal way around that. Is that TA? Is the TA uh, self supported TA? Paul, would you know this? Can a self-supported TA team associate um, yes. be a non-US citizen and be supported to a team? Absolutely. Yes, yes. Yeah. I think yes. Yes. 100%. So they, they, yes. There is a way to join and be on an IMDB team, be part of the strategy and be um, members, but you would have to be self-funded. Yeah, so an IMB has a pathway for this. It's not as common, obviously, but they would you raise your own support, but then you could you can even go through training in Richmond with the rest of us, and then go and join an IMB team. But the financial aspect of it, it just totally looks totally different. But that is a very valid way to go if if uh, green card is on the table. I think the name is the Global Sparkles that Amanda is the director. Yeah, I was talking uh, with uh, Joanne about it. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So even for example, we have. Uh, we have GCCs on our team, and this is Brain Commission Christians, right? This is even like a partnership below that. They're on our church planning team, and they are Southern Baptists, but they're both worship leaders, and, and they never even got bachelors. They're so musical and artsy that they don't need it. Um, but they wanted to join our team and join our church planning team. But well, they raised, they raised support, went through another organization, but they are intimately connected with us, the two IMB career people that are there, and 100% on board with our strategy and our church planning effort and everything. So they're great teammates, but they're not, they're not IMB. Yeah. But the asset of having an international, um, um, I mean, once you're overseas, you're really international, but the, um, having a multicultural team is a huge asset. Yeah. In, in yeah, it's really good. It's really good. The question is valid and it's a challenging one. Yeah. Because we're not really international mission board, we're an American mission board. And primarily because of US tax laws, it, it becomes very, very difficult to support internationals. Um, however, I feel like there's increasing conversations about this because we have a good percentage of our student body that are international students. And it's tricky because uh, churches are beginning to look around and realize that nations are being moved here by the providence of God. And increasingly, churches are trying to figure out how can we have staff that looks like the neighborhood. 
um, it, it's challenging because it's no longer $100, which is what it cost me for a green card. It's now about $7,000. Mm -hmm. and, and so some, very few, but some churches are beginning to say it's a price that's worthy of us considering in order to satisfy our need to be obedient to the Great Commission right here. So um, their conversations are increasingly being had. How can we have true partnerships with passionate mission partners who don't happen to have a U.S. passport or a green card. Um, I just don't think we've arrived at a good solution right now. And in fact, you know, Sherry and I may have messed it up because the IMB got really complicated when they were trying to satisfy the requirements of Canadian revenue and the IRS because both wanted their money. So it, it um, it's challenging. And I'm not sure the answer, but I, I know there are lots of conversations right now about that. My family dealt with this. You, many of you know Dr. Sieberhagen, who's my dad and, and from South Africa. So when we originally went with IMB, again, we ran into this massive roadblock and we were actually delayed going to the field by a year and a half because we had to figure out the green card situation and it was complicated. And then there was even a, a point 12 years later where we were trying to get US citizenship. We thought that would make it easy, but then even that got delayed and they had to go off salary at one point and all kinds of crazy stuff because it's it's all of this is just not straightforward. It's it's complicated. But there, I mean, there are other mission agencies, there are other routes, there are also your churches that um that it's good to have them involved in uh, even great, you know, supporting you. And so if I would say that if that is a roadblock and we are talking about a lot of routes and a lot of benefits that certain groups and students get to enjoy from the United States, but around the world, there are a great many missionaries that, that are from, from China, from the Philippines, from Nigeria, from Myanmar. So um, there are increasing opportunities and other organizations that can also engage that. So, and that we work with overseas. So I, work, I, I went overseas in 2000 with a different organization. And, um, <clears throat> and then I, I was part of, a, part of a company overseas that had IMB people involved with it. And so there was a partnership and there was actually three missions organizations involved in a partnership with that project. And so that has its own challenges because you have different authority structures to each of those organizations, but um, you can come together in prayer and good Christian love. I think um, those projects can be empathized. And so just because it's really hard to get uh, on board with IMB because of different logistical things. There are alternative missions organizations. In fact, um, maybe even international, like real ones that, that start outside of the US that you could be part of. And if they have a close relationship, if that organization has a close relationship with IMB, you could be seconded to an IMB team and enjoy the, the benefits of being part of the, that kind of structure. So, I have a different type of question. I don't know if asked this. How do you guys deal with um, missing like big life events of like family and friends back home, like you know, babies being born, marriages, deaths, things like that? Like, how do you deal with that while you're out on the field? Yeah. 
And that's probably hard. Can, I, can I speak to that real fast? Yeah, yeah, please. So last year, my dad died, and my wife's dad died, and my wife's brother died in, mm -hmm. in one year, in a five-month period. And those were those people were all so close to us that we felt we couldn't miss them. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know that they would all die. In one yeah, year. yeah. And so it, it was a financial hardship for us, but we felt like it was something that we needed to do. So we took part in those, but there was there was other funerals that I wanted to attend, but I couldn't. And so I asked ahead of time if they could like live stream it yeah. or they could connect like a Zoom call. Um, and so I was able to attend on video, um, and even though I couldn't come home for that. I think it's important to find some way. Sometimes you can't come home no matter what. And sometimes for international students being over here, there's family events that happen back home. And so um, what, what can happen is that you, you think you're going to delay grief or you're just going to push through it and it won't happen. But um, the events of having a funeral or having a certain kind of uh, ceremony or, or engagement with, with those that are in your team overseas, um, having that is extremely important and not, but you have to be very intentional to do it. Um, and it can be like that in the States. It can be like that almost anywhere where you, um, you don't take the time to actually sit with it or you don't take the time to actually commemorate it. Um, but those, no matter what, you're, those, if you're trying to avoid it, those anniversaries will come and you'll know it. And um, and let yourself grieve in the sense that you, one, you have to be willing to go there, and it's hard. Um, but if you don't, it doesn't actually go away. It just you are are stuffing it. It will come out, and and it will be there no matter what. It's better to do it openly and with people you love and trust. Then at a time where uh, something else happens, you you lose your visa, or you your your husband has a car wreck, but he's okay. But all of a sudden, it's just all coming out, and you're not able to handle that situation because you didn't walk through the grief. So, but I will say it's important to acknowledge that your generation will feel this more deeply than the previous generation. Mm -hmm. Sherry and I are kind of bridge missionaries, meaning. Um, when we first went out, the fastest way to communicate with our parents took nine days. Um, we served with missionaries who both sets of their parents died. The funeral happened before they even heard about it. Um, that sounds difficult, but you will be surprised how much more difficult it is when, when communication is in real time. You see a loved one on the other side of the ocean weeping over a recent loss or fear of loss. That can be really challenging. So I think it's more like what a lot of people experience during COVID. Yeah. And then they, they can watch their family members. It, yeah, and it can happen on the other end. I, I had to bury my sister in Singapore when her family was on the other side. Like she came out for a last visit. She my sister was Chinese, and only 10 people were allowed at the funeral. And and so there was 800 people zooming in. From a distance, it, it 
it helps, but it, it's not the same as mm -hmm. being there because the funeral really is not for the dead. It's for the living to comfort one another and be strengthened mm -hmm. together. So, so that is the hard thing. But I will say, like Sherry lost both her parents while we were over. Um, and the affection we receive from nationals is the best we've ever been loved. Because they're like, this couple sacrificed so much to serve the gospel in our midst, and they just loved us so well. So the important takeaway for us is you may not have uh, a team of people who look like you. Your team may be nationals, and there will be defining moments in your life where that was the best team you could have imagined. Um, our best friends in the world are still Asians. Um, and, and I'm sure those of you who serve in, in the field would, would say the same thing. So your family shifts. You, you feel emotionally torn at times. I, I wasn't there when either of my parents died. And, and at some point, um, when, when your family is caring for your elderly parents, especially if you serve in Asia and you feel this compelling need to be a good son, it's really, really hard. So all of that stuff, definitely. I, I mean, you've got your eyes wide open. You've experienced that. And the, this pain we give to the cross uh, is part of the sacrifice. But everything flips when you realize, like, our, our children grew up not knowing their grandparents. Uh, so I suddenly realized the greatest sacrifice in missions is the parents who let their son and daughter go to live every day without their grandchildren. Um, th that is a great sacrifice in missions. And we who go really don't feel that as much as the parents we leave behind, the grandparents. And I offer one practical note on this. Um, as you see the date, that you're moving overseas coming, pressure all your friends and siblings to get married. <laughs> I joke, but I did do a little bit of that. No, my practical note is my, my second year on the mission field, uh, the guy who was one of the best men in my wedding got married and I couldn't, I couldn't go. He asked me to come and I couldn't. So it was hard, right? Um, so what could I do sitting there uh, an ocean away from him? Um, I, I wrote out a single page, a single space, five page letter to him, just really in detail about everything what I wanted to tell him about marriage and what I was praying for him, what, what I was hoping for him. And uh, it let me process it, what I what I wanted to in that letter, but it also let me know I'm, I, I want to contribute to show him that I truly, truly am sorry for not being there. Yeah. And this is how I, I can express that. Uh, do y'all each mind describing just a little bit of like your own journey of like what how did you get to the point where you're like I'm going like or stepping into whatever role that you're in whether it's here in the states or overseas sure, sure. um okay well for me it was just an ongoing sense of oughtness this is what God is calling me to um I I mean when I first met Ian he was already like had sensed a calling he knew this is what God wanted for him, but he was kind of running away from it. And so I kind of took it on myself. And so here I was like telling him, you have to follow your calling. You know, this is what you made this commitment, you know, and, 
and you can't run away from it. And so I just, the more I was talking to him and then God really started working on me, like what is wrong, you know, with you, you know, what about your calling? And so it's just like this growing sense of God was calling me. And I think the call was the most important thing for me. Once I had that settled, it was like, I was, you know, just straight going, heading toward that direction. But before that was settled, I think I was still kind of like, well, you know, maybe this would be good. And maybe this is how I can serve the Lord. And maybe I don't need to actually, you know, give up everything. I was studying engineering. I was planning to do a very different, I was going to have a very different life. And, um, but once I kind of settled that, it was like, I think everything else kind of fell into that calling. And it just, I just was, I wasn't really looking in other directions after that. And that's just something that God does in your life. And, and it's nothing that you can do on your own. You just know that this is what God's calling you to. So you ask like, what is the process or how did, no, I just want to be here for each of y'all. You're ahead of process in our journey. Yeah, so um, if you've had a class with Dr. Sieberhagen, that's my dad, so how could I not end up on the mission? <laughs> um, no, I, I did. I have, a, I, have a, I have a privilege of growing up on the mission field, and my, just my, my story of getting to know Jesus is one of just slow, patient discipleship by my parents mm -hmm. over the course of 18 years. And I, I love my testimony. Right, it's it, I just feel so lucky to have it. So as I got to 17, 18, God really just gave me perspective saying, I've given you this cross-cultural experience growing up for a reason. You can live cross-culturally easily. You can learn languages, you've done it before, you can do it again. Um, and uh, and so when I got on a plane to the university here, I just knew it was a matter of time before I'd be on a plane going the other way again. And so I, and my, my perspective too is also just like don't assume the door's closed a lot of people are just like oh the door's probably locked just keep walking through doors until one actually is locked that's my own approach with me like, is the door open god wants you to walk through it Fine. i might um for for me we were having an on-mission celebration i was pastoring a church uh in tennessee um a very good church, loved our family, loved my boys. Um, my boys were with their, my, my parents, my maternal and paternal father and mother passed away before I turned 19. Mm -hmm. So we had an adoptive family that uh, until my father passed away here a few months ago was my, actually my dad longer than my real father was, was alive. So, um, so all that being said, uh, we were living in Tennessee, and that's where our adoptive mom and dad were. My children were with uh, their grandparents uh, every week. My um, adoptive mother was a principal of a school, Christian school. Uh, my two older boys were in Christian school at the time. Uh, I was, again, pastoring a great church. My wife's a neonatal nurse. She had a fabulous job as a neonatal intensive care nurse and um it was really a, a good scenario for us and then we uh, invited someone to come for a world uh, or on mission celebration they called it during those, during those days and they came from canada 
and he started telling us about the needs in Canada. And our first thought was, uh, we kind of hit it off with him, but after he left, we thought, well, maybe we can just support Canadian missions. We'll send, you know, extra money above and beyond our tithes and offerings to Good Canada idea. Good idea. to help that project. <laughs> and uh, the next thing I know, I get a phone call. And he goes, hey, uh, there's a church up here that uh, it basically doesn't exist anymore. We have the building, but we need to plant a new church. And some people call it a replant. really wasn't a replant because it was me and my wife. And they had two people in the church, a, a woman and a, and a man not married, and one couple. Uh, and that was it. So I had four folks and my, my wife and I. And he goes, yeah, I think you do really good up there. And oh, by the way, it's about 14 hours from the border at the start of the Alaskan Highway. And so, well, why do you want us to go there? Well, we can't get any Canadians to go up there. <laughs> you know, only, only Americans will go that far. Right? It's, it's, not, it's not a big city. So we don't, you know. So anyway, one thing led to another. Um, God opened the door and we, uh, we answered that call and left everything that was secure and comfortable and good. My wife, when we left Texas, it was the first time she'd ever lived outside of Texas when we went to Tennessee. That was a starting point, but it was kind of a, a general starting point because my mom and dad were there. And my family of origin, we'll say, was more stable than my wife's family of origin. So it was a, a safe place for her place where she was loved and she got to you know mix and mingle with my brothers i have three two brothers by blood and three other brothers so there's six of us total everybody pretty much exists there except my brother my oldest brother was a missionary in mexico at the time with IMB, and he and his wife 14 years as an ag missionary but we uh we felt called and god wouldn't release us from the call so i moved from sending money to sending ourselves, right? We're, we're you know, I, you're the ones who I want. And we went and spent uh, five wonderful years, planted successfully a church that exists to this day, um, and fell in love with the country. And then some, just some issues with Canadian immigration and paperwork led us to come back across the border and, um, but it was it was one of those it was one of those struggles that you go through. You know, is this what God wants, um, or do I stay here where everything is comfortable? And it wasn't easy, but God provided everything. And there's more of that I could tell you about that story. But God God took care of us and turned out to be the greatest opportunity of our lives, um, the greatest experience for our family. Uh, serving there and planting that church and loving those people. Um, and because we followed the Lord, he was faithful to allow us to do things that would have never happened in our lives if we'd stayed in Middle Tennessee. What should church involvement look like while you're stateside? before heading overseas or with a NAM church plant? Are you talking about the planter that's going to plant? 
Yeah, or the, yeah, or the missionary. Oh, you should be as involved as possible. I mean, I, I when when we, when I was in seminary years ago, um, number one, I said I was I was saved in a church plant, uh, met in a public school in Houston, Texas, uh, became Brentwood Baptist Church up until a few years ago. It still may be, but I haven't verified. Largest. Um, predominantly black church now in the in the SBC life. Um, started as an Anglo church in a school building, uh, Montgomery Elementary. And so I, I tell people that's where the Lord saved me. And then when I, we were in seminary, we got involved in a church plant um, up in the Summerfields area of uh, North Fort Worth. And then from that point we didn't immediately go into planting but we went into pastoral ministry and we're in that for 10 years before he called us to to uh Canada to plant and and then we've been involved and engaged in planting you know ever since um, in, in a more hands-on way both in the U.S. and internationally but your involvement now you know get get everything you can get get as much experience as you can get I when I was in school, started at Dallas Baptist, we I was assistant chief of security because I'd been in the military there. I had to literally, I'm not I'm not making this up. This is true. I had to walk the secretary, the assistant, administrative assistant, we call them nowadays, from Dr. Bell's office to the bulletin board to put up an opportunity for someone to preach, right? And the reason for that is there were preachers, as we used to call back in my day, preacher boys, lined up in mass, all trying to get that one opportunity to go preach. A few years ago at this very school, and I can't say anything in the last few years that I've queried this, but a few years ago, I would talk to guys about their engagement in church, and their answer to me was, well, I'm just preparing to do church. If you're not doing church, you're not prepared to do church, guys. You need to be engaged now. And there's places all around you where you can find a place to engage. Yeah, and the IMB is not going to send you as a missionary. Your church is going to send you as a missionary, partnering with other South Baptist churches. Yeah. IMB didn't send me. Hewland Street Church sent me, partnering with other Southern Baptist churches to send me. And, and when I... On the field, my communication doesn't stop with them. Uh, they're they're the ones that send me and other Southern Baptist churches. It's huge, important to remember. You're not just a lone Christian being sent by an institution to go do something fun. You are a Christian as a part of a local church that is sending you out as a representative to church plant among the nations. Um, that relation. If, so if you sever that relationship, you, you're severing the source of of who's sending you. Right, and that's a dumb thing to do. Um, and uh, yeah, so very, very important to keep that relationship healthy, to have good communication in that relationship, to talk about expectations, and be a catalyst for what your church is doing among the nations here now. Um, so yeah, no, no, plan, no, no planner with NAM goes out without ascending church. Right, mm -hmm. NAM doesn't send anybody, NAM doesn't plant churches. Churches plant churches. So unless you have a sending church that is in good standing in the Southern Baptist Convention and you want to go plant with us, there would be no way you could do it. So 
like you said, it's best to be engaged all the way through. I was just going to say, as women, um, I feel like one of the best things you can do is really experience a broad kind of ministry as broad as possible. You know, go to the children's Sunday school, learn to teach in children's Sunday school. If you have a biblical counselor or somebody who does biblical counseling, go and, and find out how they're doing it. What I mean, if you can take classes on all these things, great. But if you've got small kids and it's hard, you can at least go and experience this. Even music, like children's choirs, um, you know, that was some of our big outreach events. We're doing children's things, and it brought all the adults, you know. And I, I didn't have any musical. I didn't even play the piano. I don't read music, but I had to lead a 50 children's choir, and we had 800 people come in a Muslim country. So, you know, like, I never thought I would do something like that, but I wish that I had, you know, been involved in some of these things in my church so that I had some more handles. So then when I got over there, I'm like by myself and I'm teaching aerobics classes in Chinese <laughs> in my neighborhood in order to, and I, you know, I mean, I, I had done some aerobics. I had never taught it, especially not in Chinese. So, you know, you, you just realize that in your local church, you can start experiencing some of these things with people who are doing it and find, because it's not going to translate, like, definitely, it's not going to translate the same over there. Women's ministry here is very different from women's ministry there. My women's ministry in other countries, a lot of times, it's just meeting with women and praying, praying for them, praying with them, teaching them to pray, or so... A, a class on prayer or getting involved in prayer ministry for women, I think is huge because a lot of women are suffering and they want somebody to pray with them. And then the biblical counseling aspect, like I didn't have a bad biblical counseling degree, but I was doing a lot of counseling and I wish I had known better how to use scripture to, you know, pour into women's lives. So, I mean, you'll have so many different opportunities. So just kind of every opportunity in your church to sort of touch on all these areas would be a huge blessing to you. And also it helps your spouse because a lot of the men are working full time. So a lot of the avenue to the men is through the women. And so sometimes the front line is really with women and children. Um, I would also say that sometimes in your study or sometimes uh, if you go overseas and you experience what churches like overseas, I would just suggest don't be too judgy of the church um, here or wherever. Just get plugged into the church. Yes, church will look very different and strategy might be different overseas or in Oregon or, or wherever, but um, you will glean very important things in the church that you can uh, engage with here or where you are locally. Uh, relation, I mean, one thing that will always be the same is you're going to still have to deal with other people in church. <laughs> and so, um, you know, learning how to traverse that and traverse ugliness 
um, um, in yourself and others, but do it with one another's. If you want to just do a nice word study, you look at one another's in the testaments. But um, then I, I wanted to say, like, the church that I was sent from to go overseas, I wasn't very cl close to before we left. Um, we landed at a certain church because we were in New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina came, a hurricane came, and we had to evacuate. We ended up doing uh, stuff in a small Oklahoma town. And, um, but we always ended up coming back to that church on our state side. And uh, uh, this Sunday, uh, uh, I will join a new church, but it's very difficult for me. It's something for me that I have to grieve. Um, the last time we, we uh, went back to the um, uh, landed in the States, just walked into this little fellowship hall with that was uh, it was supposedly a prayer meeting, but it's it, so that the elderly could still have a Sunday school class um, because the church went on to start uh, small groups. But this older gentleman who had actually been my uh, systematic theology professor at a small liberal arts school stood up and gave me this huge bear hug, and he's just a very straight-laced kind of guy. Like he he would always shake my hand whenever I come back, but this last time, especially probably after COVID. They went through a lot, of course. Um, when I'm going to stay and uh, join another church, I'm going to remember that uh, from uh, the last one. So, yeah, even though I could be very judgy of, of my home church, um, um, I would have missed that opportunity and those, those relationships. Can I yeah, please. So, um, in a nutshell, without prayer, missions fails, whether we're going to plant a new church in the U.S. or internationally, or whatever we're doing as a mission. So if you are interested in missions, you need to work, you need to already be getting a prayer base set up. And that needs to be part of what you see as your job as a missionary. So you're taking time in your work week to connect and update and build your prayer base. Okay, so in 2000, I started building prayer base. Um, at the time, I had to raise full support. And, and my dad came to me and he said, don't worry about the money. God owns all the money in the world. So he's going to send you to the field. He'll send you to the field with whatever, wherever it comes from. What you need to do is you need to build a prayer base and ask for prayer. And so that's what I did. So I went around and everyone you know, all your friends, you ask if you can meet with people in their church, and you tell them about what, what you're going to do, and you ask, can you pray for me? Would you like my, can I get your email? And you start a newsletter, a monthly newsletter, and you're faithful to it, and you put prayer requests and, and updated stories in your newsletter, and you every, everywhere you go, you build a prayer base. Your home church is your main, but you want to connect with everybody, get everybody praying for you. Because when you're in a hospital bed, minutes away from death in some other country, and people are hammering emails because they heard about your sickness, and you realize that there are hundreds or thousands of people praying for you, it's an extra boost to your emotional well-being to help you get through whatever you needed to get through. Okay, so I felt that personally in 2021 with COVID, and just knowing there were hundreds of people that knew I was sick. And that there wasn't a hospital bed in Delhi at the time. 
And I just I just prayed and I and I, I was getting all kinds of emails and text messages now. People praying like over text messages, people sending me videos of them praying. And I mean, it was so encouraging. So start now. Start connecting with people and, and ask them to pray for you. Ask them to, to pray for your vision and, and pray yourself over your vision. And just keep being dedicated and don't let it fail. Don't let it fall short. Just keep going. But without prayer, it's it'll just it'll never work. We have time for about one more question. I have one. Have you experienced um, persecution? And if so, how did you deal with it? I think that's it, that's a hard question for a lot of us been overseas in the sense that um, you know we we know families that that uh, locals that deal with it a lot more than anything that we've experienced. Mm -hmm. Well, I think some of the hardship is is um, seeing uh, uh, locals that have to struggle through a, a great deal mm -hmm. in that in persecution. Yeah, yeah you gain perspective quickly. You know, like uh, Belgians have told me, what you're doing is, we don't want you here. This is useless. Like, what are you like? We don't need you in this culture. <clears throat> but me having to deal with that versus some people I've known have had to deal with, like their families totally kicking them out. You know, like I can deal with some people saying we don't want you here. You know? So it's it's tough for me to even classify that as persecution. Something was just a little mean. All right, but when you see, yeah, your your locals and your friends go through some really hard things because they're faithful to the gospel, um, and oftentimes this is the story as a missionary. It's you, you're you're because you're sharing the gospel with people, they start to receive persecution. You start to say, you start to think because I'm here, these people are now hurting, and that's that's the tough thing to deal with. That's the tough thing to. Come to terms with. I personally find it very challenging to respond to that question because persecution in America is basically everything. Um, we feel persecuted because a public school teacher won't lead our children in prayer. Um, I, I don't I, I don't know how to reconcile that with a church that believes they're persecuted just because of the cross, just because they have faith in Jesus. And I I don't I don't know how to tell my friends who everyone have sacrificed something to come to Christ. Uh, some will lose their children and they'll be raised in an Islamic orphanage if a family member decides to share that they are attending a Christian church. So I, the way I deal with it is I feel deeply humbled that, that no one we served with had a get out of jail free card. It's a passport. Uh, so our, our decision was to serve at the level of comfort that our nationals had 
And in every case that we've ever been, they have a far higher threshold than we first did. So, I mean, that's, I guess, the best response I can give. <clears throat> you want to be a little edgy, right, with, with ministries. And so what I mean by that is you can, you can uh, be in safe places <laughs> on the field. Um, but to, to get the gospel out, there'll be a negative response. And you need to be willing to encounter that negative response. So, you know, it's okay to be invited to leave a mosque. That's not, that's not real persecution. It's okay to go into a mosque and to know that everybody there will disagree with you. And to sit down and just really just talk about Jesus and camp out on Jesus and just keep going back to Jesus. And they, they'll say all kinds of stuff. But the, the key is be a little edgy. Like get involved with things where you could get invited to leave. And that's that's all right. But also like like these guys are saying, absolutely right. Where you know your local partners and their know their threshold and know know when they are not comfortable. And if it's if it's justified, then step back when they as they step back. Don't lead them into something that is unnecessarily dangerous, if you know what I'm saying. But then there's there's just stuff you deal with, not necessarily as a missionary, but as a rich American overseas. And that's weird. Like in Kazakhstan, I got chased around a lot by the police. Like they were grab they were trying to grab my passport everywhere I went. And you never want to let go of your passport. So it's just like this constant mouse game with these corrupt policemen that just want to get a fine out of you. And so that's not really persecution, but it's a stress on the field where the authorities are, you know, the not so nice authorities are trying to get stuff out of you. And that weighs on you as well. It's different than persecution, but that that's kind of a constant thing in, in a lot of um, the developing world. Yeah, one thing you learn a lot about culture shock as you're preparing to go, but culture stress is another thing, another component of living overseas. Culture shock goes away. It's tough. You you get through it. Culture stress never goes away. Culture stress just comes from you being a person inside of a system that was not designed for you. And so uh, that's that's a low hum of stress that comes from living cross-culturally. And that's something that you learn how to navigate as a missionary. Okay, thank you all so much for coming. Um, again, at the end, this is Mr. Duggar. If any of you are interested in doing church planting, how long are you here? In the area? <laughs> I will be back. In, I will be back January the sixth through the, or ninth through the thirteenth. Okay, just right after this to start here, so you can exactly. So I'm working on my doctorate. Dr. Copeland is our associate director, and him and his wife Jeannie served with member care. So, anybody who's doing counseling and thinking about going overseas, they would be a good couple to talk to. Thomas and his wife Holly are at MIRs until. I have it written June. down, but I don't know when. June. June. So they're here. We'll be here all year. Yeah.
Yeah. Also, I have an office just upstairs, and I'm just in, up there writing a dissertation. So please interrupt me. I welcome. <laughs> <laughs> And then most of you know who Dr. Button and Mrs. Bunton are. So, and they're great resources. And Mrs. Bunton leads the Women on Missions every month. So, she would be great for the women specifically to talk to. Um, but yeah, if you have any questions, you can email the WMC at swibits.edu. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Kristen, do you mind if I pray for the students and everyone here? Be close. That'd be awful if I said no. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you for what you're doing among the nations. And thank you for sending people to go and to spread your message. Lord, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited for one day when we can sit in, in the kingdom of heaven and just hear the stories. What you did with these students' lives. I'm excited to see you glorified. But I pray for wisdom in these days as they're here to study and prepare. I pray for perse perseverance, for encouragement, for extra um, moments of strength that come out of nowhere during an all-nighter. Um, I pray that they run with uh, the goal in mind. 